You must increase. We lift you high. Lord, we pray that you would be lifted high this day. Lord, you said I have come in grace and truth, full of grace and truth, Jesus, that you have come to dwell in us, that you are the word of God. And God, we pray that you would dwell in our midst right now through your spirit, through your word, that, Lord, where there are dense minds that you would open and deaf ears that you would open, Lord, strengthen our wills that we might obey you and love you. And we pray this through your word. We pray this for these young ones. and We pray this for ours who remain here as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to Faith, and welcome to our launch uh, message series on the hard teachings of Jesus. Normally, we, as a church, uh, go through a series of books uh, in our preaching time. Uh, Paul says, I have not hesitated to preach to you the whole counsel or the whole will of God. And so as a discipline, as a diet, we usually would take an Old Testament book or a New Testament book and we would work our way through the core uh, teachings and the core passages chronologically in those books. Uh, all scriptures, God breathed, Paul said, and it's profitable, it's useful for rebuking, correcting, and instructing in righteousness so that the man and the woman of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so that's, that's been our normal practice, is the whole word of God. But Paul also said in Acts 20, I have not hesitated to preach to you or teach to you what is helpful for you, what is profitable. And so we're taking a uh, kind of a break from our normal routine, and we're going to be looking particularly at various passages in the Scriptures concerning what would be considered hard teachings of Jesus, the challenging passages of Jesus. And, uh, and so we're going to be, uh, I think there's a slide that uh, shows some of those uh, eat my flesh, Drink my blood, that's today. Uh, uh, not an iota, uh, and Pastor Stan's going to do that next week. Hell, love your enemies, judge not, marriage, divorce, be not anxious, lust. I mean, these are, these are some pretty challenging passages. So we're going to be plotting our way through these uh, in the next nine weeks. And uh, we're also going to provide for those that, it's going to provoke some questions, I'm sure, that uh, these, this series so we're going to have a 10 minutes after the close of worship, an opportunity for anyone that would like to have some dialogue, uh, ask questions to uh, the pastors or others. Uh, this, this is the time we're going to provide for, for a short period of time after worship in the sanctuary. So this is an exciting time. Invite your friends. There's uh, brochures out in the lobby. But as we jump into this, let's. Uh, we've already heard of a chunk of the passage that we're going to look at today from John 6, uh, Jesus is heating things up, and uh, this is continuing in his discourse in John 6, starting with verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the, and the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. So Christian, what would it take for you to stop following Christ? What would it take for you to stop following Christ? I've, I've been spending some time reviewing some old prayer journals uh, over the course of the years with the possibility that it could surface some helps for other struggling believers in the faith and maybe some emerging leaders. And I found this one in December 2003, and it says, So here I am again, so what would it take for you to disengage from your faith? What would it take for you to stop growing? What would it take for you to stop believing in God in Christ? Would it take an excruciating divorce? Would it take the terminal death of a beloved child? Would it take the shock of unemployment and the difficulty of finding dignifying work? Would it take the suicide of a loved family member? Would it take the grief and guilt over what you thought were good faith decisions that have negatively impacted the health of your children? Who is this God? Why should I continue to trust or engage myself to him if he intends and determines to set me up for unspeakable grief? At this moment, I feel paralyzed and tired. I do not know what to do. Well, I'm still here. That was 12 years ago. (laughs) 
So I guess that God pulled me out of that particular tailspin. I remember a campus leader of Virginia Tech asking me, Craig, what would it take for you to stop following Christ? I didn't know. Well, Satan will offer that to you, whatever it is, he said. But in this passage, it is not Satan that is pushing the limits and pressing and testing the substance of faith. It is Christ himself. Johnny Erickson, tada, who was uh, from Baltimore, she was a top athlete in her school, and uh, right after graduation, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay and uh, severed her spinal cord, and she has suffered with great pain as a quadriplegic over decades. She wrote a book called Glorious Intruder, and she says, God is an intruder. He encroaches, presumes, invades, and infringes. He crashes the party, tears aside curtains, throws open locked doors, hits the light switch in a dark room. God pulls the fire alarm in stuffy, sacrosanct hallways. <laughs> and he does. Here, Jesus intrudes on comfortable followers. Here, Jesus gives hard teachings to his hearers. And here Jesus calls followers to an offensive faith. We find here an audacious Jesus. We find here a great desertion. And we find here a sovereign grace. The context of these words was that Jesus had just fed 5,000 plus people. Actually, uh, they predict that it was more like 20,000. Uh, the multiplying of that little, little boy's lunch with his five barley loaves and two fish. His mom probably packed his lunch that morning. Who would have guessed that his lunch would have fed 20,000 people? Well, the people did what every good American would do, elect Jesus as president. In chapter 5, it says that he, they intended to make him king by force. You're going to be our king whether you like it or not. Now, Jesus knew that they were mainly interested in having their bellies perpetually filled through exciting miracles, and so he says that he withdrew to the mountain. He would not play their games. And so they came looking for Jesus, and Jesus exposes their selfish motives and tells them not to work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life that the Son of Man will give them. And then he tells them explicitly about what that food is and who is that food. And so Jesus declares blatantly, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he keeps saying, I am the bread of life in many different passages. And this is, by the way, the first of the eight I am statements in the Gospel of John. Uh, the book of John, by the way, the first half is, is, uh, is, is given the book of signs, where Jesus has various miracles to prove his claims. But then there's these eight I am statements uh, where Jesus is making rather outrageous, audacious, blatant claims about who he is. Uh, there was a uh, novelist, Gwen Hayes, who said, My best advice is to be yourself unless you're psychotic. Then you might want to try a different tactic. <laughs> well, you know, Muhammad Ali, you know, he was pretty, pretty upfront. I am the greatest. 
Now, there was probably a true period of time where Muhammad Ali was the greatest boxer uh, in the world. Uh, but if he had said, I am the greatest man who ever lived, well, we would have thought he was delusional and psychotic. Well, Jesus is claiming much more. <laughs> and his claims, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, or before Abraham was, I am. I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine. Jesus is making all of these audacious claims, and in every single one of them, he is declaring himself to be nonetheless than God himself. And these listeners understood that Jesus was claiming something more than he was just a prophet, or he was someone like Moses. He says, I am the true bread from heaven. And so Jesus gives this. And after already exposing and, uh, their impure motives, and after he has told them that he has these, these uh, audacious claims about himself, uh, he raises the offense a notch more. And he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now the thought of eating the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking his blood was doubtless shocking to most of Jesus' Jewish hearers. Eating flesh and blood did sound cannibalistic. Uh, it was rather repugnant, and particularly to religious leaders, because in Leviticus 17, you were not to eat meat with blood in it. Uh, you know, if you like rare meat, well, you weren't allowed to do that as a Jewish person. You can't have blood flowing in the meat because the life is in the blood. There was something sacred about that. And so when Jesus says you have to drink the blood, eat the flesh, I mean, it was a really a radical thing for him to say. But if the Jewish leaders, the hearers, would have understood a little bit more that that blood that was talked about in Leviticus was the blood of atonement. It was a blood of covering. And that there was something deeper that Jesus was trying to get at. While they couldn't understand, they couldn't put it all together, uh, the disciples began to grumble and mutter more about this. And uh, they didn't like what he was saying. And he says, does this offend you? Does this offend you? And then he says... What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? He, he ratchets it up. The, he's, Jesus is ratcheting up more offenses. You know, I'm the bread of life. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. What if you see the Son of Man ascending to heaven? Now, what Jesus is talking about, you know, here is the ascension, which involves his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascend, ascend, ascension into heaven. Now, this is a radical Claim. And of course, they're still like, What's, what is he talking about? Who does this guy think he is? We know his family. He's from Capernaum. His family, we believe, moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. They were there. His mother was there. His brothers and sisters were there. We know where you came from. Who do you think you are? Well, God. <laughs> Jesus said, well, I'm God. You know, I came down from heaven. I will send into heaven. There was no question. And so Jesus says, does this offend you? And that word is scandalizo. Does this scandalize you? 
you know. It's just a word about an impediment, a stumbling block, uh, getting a foot entangled. And Jesus is pushing them to the point of decision. His words become offensive as he gives them something greater to stumble over. We find that as Jesus' ministry grows, Jesus not only grows more popular, he grows more offensive. He takes opportunities to confront people with the realities of who he is. And so he turns to his disciples and he says, is this offensive? Now, the word offensive, it means to be harsh and intolerable to their ears. You know, Jesus will say many things that offends people. Now, we like the wonderful Jesus. You know, we like the surprising Jesus who he saves a dying party by, multi- by, you know, making the water into wine. Now, that's the kind of Jesus that we like. You know, we like the wonderful healing Jesus. He heals the lame and the sick. He, he even raises the dead. We like that kind of Jesus. And we like to hear the words that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we like it when Jesus feeds the thousands, the multitudes, But many of us may get disturbed when Jesus gets so angry that he turns over tables and whips out people in the temple. We might get repelled when he says, whoever does not believe stands condemned. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Or some of us don't like the words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We like the love of God, but we often dislike and reject the wrath of God. The fact is that many of us want a nice God, a kind and gentler God, one who does not offend our sensibilities, one who is tolerant, one that we can control, one that will do what we want. And the fact is that many of us want that kind of God, but Jesus reminds us in this passage that he is not only the bread of life, the Lamb of God, but Jesus is also an offender. And so here's a question. Is it possible that you are following a view of God that you have devised a religion or a kind of Christianity that is comfortable for you? We have an amazing capacity to create and, the, and to create lots of different gods. I understand that in Hinduism, uh, there's like 330 million different gods that are worshipped. We have an incredible capacity to create gods that we want to worship. But Jesus doesn't allow you and I to think that the true God can, uh, <clears throat> can be made up by us. The question we must always ask is, am I worshiping the God who made me, or am I worshiping the God I have made? And so Jesus says, does this offend you? He ratchets it up, his offense. And then we see in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This was a large group of followers. I mean, Jesus had, had quite a church growth experience, you know. People were filling the pews. They were gathering the masses. They were celebrating all the wonderful things that Jesus did. And then all of a sudden, he ratchets it up, the reality of who he is. And there was a mass exodus. They no longer walked with him. You know, Jesus talked about 
desertion and people that would initially follow him and then would leave him in Matthew 13 about the parable of the sower. He says, For what was sown on the rocky ground hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet it has no root. It endures for a while, but when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, it immediately falls away. And Paul says with tears, he warned the Ephesian elders that there would be those that would rise up from within them and distort the truth and draw away disciples. Uh, Paul, he's at the end of his life. He's in prison. He's cold. And this is what he says in 2 Timothy 4. My first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. (laughs) He says that Demas, in love of this present world, has deserted me. He says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. You know, I'm thinking, you know, Paul, he was a pretty, you know, I think Paul was a pretty godly guy. You know, he... He, he was faithful to the Lord in his ministry. And I'm thinking, man, he should have a good life at the end. You know, you would think, think about retirement. You know, think about wonderful experiences. He could travel. You know, he could see the world. And where is Paul? <laughs> he's in prison. He's cold. He's asking for a cloak and a blanket and some scrolls. And everyone has deserted him. Gee, that's an interesting way to end an apostle's life, huh? How about that kind of God? Well, do you have a God that's big enough that can meet you in the dungeons of prison and speak into your heart words of life that are greater than the worst circumstances that you could ever imagine? Paul had that kind of God. Our perspectives of what God provides is very different. And so we see that Jesus comes, and we see this great desertion. And so this audacious audacious Jesus, these outlandish claims, and then this great desertion, but we also see finally the faithful few, the twelve, the faithful who remain because of a faithful God who was pursuing them. We see this sovereign grace. And so Jesus, after these, all these other followers left, the 12 are still remaining, just this small group. And he asks them, do you want to go as well? Do you want to leave me as well? And so Simon says, well, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I'm sure that there probably was a pause for a while. Peter probably was saying, well, you know, Lord, we'll have to tell you, uh, you've been really saying some stuff that's really hard. (laughs) We understand uh, why these people are confused. Pastor Ray Stedman paraphrased Peter's response to Jesus about this question. You want to leave me too with these words. Lord, we have been thinking about it. We have investigated the alternatives. You're not easy to live with. You embarrass us. You frighten us. We don't understand you at times. We see and hear you do things that simply blow our minds. You offend people whom we think are important. We have looked at some of the alternatives, but I want to tell you this, Lord. We have never found anyone who can do what you can do. Who, to whom shall we go? You have 
Two things that hold us, two things that we cannot deny. There are your words. What you say to us has met our deepest need, has delivered us from our sins and freed us from our fears. Your words, Lord, are the most remarkable words we have ever heard. They explain us and they explain life to us. They satisfy us. Nobody speaks like you do. Nobody understands life like you do. That holds us. And secondly, Lord, we have seen your character. We have watched you closely over the months and years, and we have come to see that there is nothing wrong in you. You are the Holy One of God. You are the sinless one. You fit the prophecies. You fulfill the predictions. You have drawn us and compelled us. You are the incomparable Christ. Thus, there is no place to go. Where, who, where should we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? You are the Holy One of God. And Jesus received that answer, but Jesus had a really interesting response. He says, well, I'm so glad that you have made that decision. I'm so glad that you have decided to follow me. You know, everybody else left me, but I'm glad that you, you know, that you forced your will to follow me. Now, he didn't say any of that. You know what he said? Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? Did I not choose you, the twelve? And what this tells us is that while it is true that they followed Jesus and they put their faith into Jesus, Jesus was telling them that there was a, there was a greater force, a greater power working before that. And Jesus told and tells this over and over and again in this passage. He makes it clear that the Spirit gives life and the flesh counts for nothing. And he repeats it numerous times. No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him, has granted it to him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him. And so the Bible shows us that coming to Christ, coming to salvation, is never merely a human achievement. Spiritual renewal, spiritual regeneration, the changing of our hearts begins and ends with God. Jesus, in Hebrews, it says about him that he is the author, the initiator, the originator, and the finisher of our faith. He is the one who initiates it, he begins it, and he will finish it. That's what Hebrews tells us. John, at the beginning of this gospel, tells us how we become children of God, but it's not by natural or physical descent, but by a human decision, it says in, in, first, in John 1, but by a person is born of God. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh and the spirit gives birth to spirit. And so it is God's spirit. He takes the heart of stone and he transforms it into heart of flesh so that we can sense our sins and that we can understand our need for Christ and that we can choose him. Now, we don't often like the idea that we're not in control. We like to be in the driver's seat. I had my son when he was uh, two or three. He's, he really liked keys, you know. And he took the keys of our car, and we went to visit my parents. And, uh, you know, we didn't see where he went. And he took the keys, he stuck them in the ignition, and he turned it. And the car, the two or three-year-old boy, you couldn't look over the steering wheel, was, the car was going down this embankment. Fortunately, uh, we were alert enough, and I was alert enough to run and get in there and, and stop this tragedy. 
but he liked to be in the driver's seat. He liked to put that key in the ignition and go someplace. And even at two or three years old now, you parents know that children want to take control right at the beginning. And so it is true. Uh, theologian R.C. Sproul told an incident about an Episcopalian priest from England visiting some of the historic sites of the Revolutionary War in Philadelphia. He saw signs like, don't tread on me, and no taxation without representation. And he saw this sign that said in bold letters, we serve no sovereign here. <laughs> we serve. And the English priest looked up at it and he said, how can I possibly communicate the idea of the kingdom of God in a nation that has a built-in allergy to sovereignty? <laughs> when Jesus was talking about no one can come to him unless the Father enables him, that is precisely what he's talking about. God is sovereign in life, and he is sovereign in salvation. The idea of we wanting to be in charge permeates our world, and even the Christian world. Most people believe that they still have the power and the ability to choose God without any of his help. You take one step to God, and he'll take one step to you. Doesn't the Bible say that God helps those who help themselves? No. <laughs> That's what Benjamin Franklin said. Bob Dylan got it right in his, his, uh, his song, Saved, back in the 80s. I was blinded by the devil, born already ruined, stone cold dead as I stepped out of the womb. By his grace I have been touched. By his word I have been healed. By his hand I've been delivered. By his spirit I've been sealed. I've been saved <laughs> by the blood of the Lamb. Well, <clears throat> somebody saved that clock, yes. You know, one of the, one of the permeating descriptions uh, that people think about, about salvation is the great picture of Revelation 3 with Jesus standing at the door knocking. They perceive this to be a, an image of Jesus trying to uh, woo the unbeliever. And, uh, you know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And... Uh, this is kind of the classic uh, picture that is given about this. And if you look closely at this picture, you will see that there is no doorknob on this door. All that Jesus can do is just knock. Please let me in. Would you please let me in? You know, he can't, like, open the door himself. It's all up to the other person on the other side to open that door. But Revelation 3 is not about a salvation. It's about fellowship. It's about a person who actually has a relationship with Christ. And, you know, we can, we, we can choose as believers to distance ourselves in our fellowship with Christ. But Christ, he comes after us. He wants a relationship with us. But that passage is not a salvation passage. It's a fellowship passage. This is more of what... <laughs> how Jesus saves us, okay? The fireman, he's breaking down the door, and uh, apparently there's something about manliness in there. You know, Jesus, he's not, 
He is not waiting for us to respond. Uh, and the classic picture is Zechariah uh, 3, where it talks about, the Lord says about Joshua the high priest, is, this, is not this a man burning, is this, is this man not a burning stick snatched from the fire? You see, Jesus, he breaks down the door and he captures us because we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Our hearts are hard stone. We are dead Unless something breathes life in us, we will not come. And so Jesus gives us over and over again in this passage and in the scriptures the reality that he has to have, the, he has, that the Father has taken initiative and he has chosen. And Jesus says, no one who comes to me will be cast out. And so the Father draws and the Father enables and Jesus chooses his disciples. We might be uncomfortable with that. And we might ask, well, if God does everything, what's left for me? Well, believe. Trust. Believe and trust. That's the work of God for you. To believe in the one that he has sent, Jesus said. While repentance and faith is a gift, believing and trusting is something you and I do. We're called to do it. We come to Christ. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out or drive away. And so he says, whoever looks to the Son, whoever comes to the Son, he will not cast out. And so we keep looking and we keep coming. And then we find that Jesus, after we've been coming, that he's been coming after us all the time. That he's been pursuing us all the time. Before the creation of the world, Ephesians says, we've been predestined as adopted to be adopted as the sons and daughters. Can you accept the sovereignty of God, or does that scandalize you? Does that offend you? And again, the question we must ask ourselves, am I worshiping the God who made me, or am I worshiping the God I have made? Here's two quick applications for this. One is that the sovereign grace of God strengthens our assurance of salvation. If I believe this, that no one can come to me unless the Father enables him. If I believe that it's Jesus that has chosen me, that if I believe that all that the Father gives to Jesus will come, and whoever comes to me will never be cast out, if I believe that, then I can look at my faith, my weak faith, my small, little, struggling, mustard seed of faith, and I will say, that's a work of God. And what God began, he will complete. This, tells, this passage tells me that my faith, as weak and fragile as it feels, is a gift and of the work of God, the Father, the Holy Spirit of Jesus. I have been claimed and called. I have been given to the Son. I will never be cast out. The only reason I came that is that to believe is because Christ has claimed me. The Father has been given to him. And the Spirit has taken this heart of stone. He's made me feel those sins, and he's, al he's allowed me to come. But secondly, the sovereign grace of God emboldens us to be faithful witnesses. It gives us boldness in our witnessing and sharing good news to others. God of the Scripture is willing that no one should perish, but everyone come to faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. His heart yearns. He weeps over Jerusalem. 
Paul says, I wish myself were cut off. I wish I would go to hell for the sake of my brethren. We see the passion, compassion, the pursuit of God for lost people, and we need to share in that. We don't know who the chosen are. We have to look at everyone as though they're chosen. We must pursue all people, and those people that God has placed within our circle of influence and relationships, we need to pursue, and we can pursue boldly, and we can pursue passionately and with prayerfully because we know that God has many people and that he is going to draw them. Paul was beat up before he went to Corinth, and he was in prison, and God comes to him at night, and he says, don't be quiet, Paul. Keep on speaking, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. God has many people in Penn Lucy, in Baltimore, in the world, and we are called to be bold ambassadors of him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us a passage like this to remind us that you are in charge. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who passionately goes after people, lost people. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who loves us to the very end. But Lord, we know that you are a sovereign God, that you're a good God, and we can trust you. Lord, help us to embrace you as you are and you declare yourself to be. And Lord, give us the passion that you have for lost people, that God, we would, we would be a faithful and be ambassadors in, in this community and world for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.